This week, we welcome Ben Carr, Global Chief Information Security at Qualys, to discuss the evolution of the CISO role in 2021 and beyond. In the Leadership and Communication section, Nine Steps for Effective Cybersecurity Risk Management, The Big Eight, How to Heighten Cybersecurity Governance, Seven Super Bowl Rings for Tom Brady, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Week. DeepWatch provides innovative managed security services that empower organizations to be more resilient against today's evolving cyber threats. DeepWatch offers game-changing capabilities in managed detection and response, managed endpoint detection and response, and vulnerability management. All delivered through a unique squad model, a dedicated group of security experts that works directly with each client. From managed security operations to threat hunting to continuous measurement of security readiness, DeepWatch is advancing the service of managed security. Measure your SecOps maturity for free by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash DeepWatch. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 205, recorded February 8th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado. Joining me from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island is my co-host for today, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here. Post-Super Bowl Sunday, Monday. Monday, yeah. We're going we're, we're gonna to quarterback, armchair quarterback. Well, anyways, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that in the next segment. Unfortunately, Jason's not with us for that discussion. I know, right? Yeah. It was interesting watching the Tampa Bay Patriots <laughs> win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll get there. Do you want to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher on our YouTube channel. You can sign up for our mailing list and join our Discord server. Also, if you miss Security Weekly Unlocked, you can access all the content on demand, whether you register before the live event or not, by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked and clicking either the button to register or the button to log in. Ben Carr is the global CISO of Qualys. As an information security and risk management executive with more than 25 years of experience, Ben develops and executes long-term security strategies. Prior to Qualys, Ben has driven transformation changes and developed security teams at Nokia, Visa, and Aristocrat. Ben, welcome back to Business Security Weekly. Thanks, Matt. Always good to be here with you. Appreciate that. So I was looking it up. It was episode number 120. You were the CISO at Aristocrat. It was March of 2019. And boy, have a lot of things changed since then. (laughs) A lot of things have changed. A lot of things have stayed the same. But yeah, it's it's been a, a much different environment, I think, over the last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about a couple aspects. I want to start first with a CISO transition, right? You transitioned from your role at Aristocrat over to Qualys last year in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, What was that experience like? I mean, kind of give us some lessons learned, some thoughts on what it's like to transition in the middle of, you know, one of the largest pandemics we've ever experienced, uh, you know, in our time. Yeah, well, I think it speaks something to the security market, right? Where, it actually wasn't all that difficult. I mean, I think security professionals are still in demand, 
Um, we've seen a, a, you know, just a, I guess, an emergence and a ever increasing need for security. Um, a lot of the transition from, you know, being in the office to work to home had a lot of security implications. So um, it wasn't all that hard. Um, the gaming industry was hit pretty hard uh, with everything in the pandemic, and uh, they're still they've, they're still being pretty uh, well impacted by that. I saw an article about Atlantic City today saying that they're still really struggling trying to figure out how to recover from that. So, um, you know, I think there were a lot of a lot of opportunities that were on hold. Um, you know, people were trying to struggle with trying to figure out how to react. The pandemic was still fairly new at that point. This was kind of the May June timeframe. Um, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't bad, but it, it was certainly. I mean, I think people were struggling to try to figure out um, how to react to the changes. Um, you know, people were still trying to figure out staffing levels, and then I think people were trying to figure out you know what what was the new importance of security and how did that thing change for both security and for IT in general. Um, I think a lot of people have been trying to struggle to figure out what this new work from home environment looks like and looks like long term. So, yeah, and when you think about the role you're in now, Qualys, you know, we Ben, you and I have our history long together history. over the years, <laughs> right? Long history. Yeah. Uh, you know, I worked at Qualys for for almost three years. I mean, Qualys is a very interesting company in in that it provides its services via the cloud, and what you saw was a shift of other organizations starting to leverage some of these other uh, cloud providers out there. And so I'm curious, you know, as you saw kind of the, your, not only your evolution and change into a new role, you know, what did that mean to Qualys in its current environment? And then eventually for customers, we'll kind of dig into some of those details. I want to unpack that a little bit, but yeah. What did it, did it make, was it a major change for Qualys? Cause I don't think it would be, but I'm, I'm just it curious. Wasn't really. it I mean, out. you know, I, I think if you go back and, um, you know, you look at the history, you know, since what, 99, uh, 20, uh, 2000, I mean, sorry, uh, 99, 2000. Um, it's been kind of an interesting road for Qualys where they were really on the forefront of cloud adoption, especially for security and, uh, companies. I remember, you know, way back in the day at, at Nokia. And that's, I think where we first uh, came across each other. Um, it was it was a bit of a struggle to get some enterprise companies to accept the fact that security was being done on a cloud platform. I've been an advocate for a long time just because I feel that you know managing security is complex enough without having to manage the infrastructure of security along with it. Um, I think you but, know you always have now, the risk. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to Monday morning quarterback that portion yeah. of it. Right? Is that when I look at how we do cloud security today or could do cloud security today? We have a lot of tools and automation, containers and DevOps in 99, 2000. And for a long time after that, we didn't have any of that. So were the big companies kind of like right in some respect that it's super hard to do things secure in the cloud because we didn't have the tools and automation that we have today? Someone, I think it was a trust issue, right? I yeah. mean, I think a lot of it, the, the reason why they were adverse was not necessarily because of the tooling or the tool set. Yeah. Um, I think they would have been you know, uh, very prescient had they decided that that was the reason why. But I right. think mainly they wanted it, it to be, be secure. In, that meant yeah. more manual effort back then. It was a lot, but, tr a lot of yeah. trust, right? Yeah, but the I point is the someone tooling, had to do it. Yeah, yeah. The tooling has come a long way now to make that more functionally possible and mm. to enhance the the trust model. Although, you know, I, I would say that you know where where I was going was that. I think that risk is still something you have to be concerned with, right? And you have sure. to measure your vendors. That's become ever more a forefront of concern right now is what's the third party risk look like, right? Mm. And and how 
of those vendors. Um, to Matt's point, I, I think there wasn't a big change for Qualys. Um, we have seen a big change and a big impact for a lot of our customers and a lot of the CISOs that I've talked to you know, on a, on a frequent basis, even outside of customer base, uh, people I know in the industry, I, I think people are, you know, have been, have struggled a little bit. Um, there were some people who were, who were well off because they had made that decision and made that journey. Um, but I think, you know, especially, like I said, this thing with, with all the third party risks that people are, are struggling with now, especially in that transition um, to, to cloud technologies, they're trying to figure out um, who do they actually rely on from a trust model. But I, you know, I, I don't necessarily extend trust when it comes to, if I were to like lay out all of my third party vendors, like who's most likely to be compromised? Uh, if a nation state were to go after really anyone that anyone would sure. do business with in security, like that's going to be a problem. I think the onus is certainly on the vendors to have a certain level of security, granted, right? But also on my part as the consumer to make sure that, okay, I'm going to trust Qualys or whoever it is to a certain extent, what am I doing? What's my responsibility as the customer to make sure that if any of my providers become breached, that I minimize the impact of my own environment? Because like I started this little rant is that anyone that is going up against any kind of threat actor that puts enough time and energy in the right people and talent are going to be successful. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. I think that it's become a challenge, right? Um, just because of the, the number of actors that are trying to monetize, mm. um, you know, the, the security right now, it's not just necessarily become about getting into the system, but it's about, you know, it's become valuable to monetize it. Um, but you're, you're right. Na certainly nation states are very hard to defend against. And I'm not necessarily saying that any vendor, if, if attacked by a nation state, would have a great chance at, at necessarily defending that. Um, and, and that, I guess, was my point about, you know, managing the risk is that you've got to look at how you're addressing your own risk and controls and the data you're putting in, in mm. different platforms. But certainly, I think one could look at not just vendors, but a lot of companies, just the prevalence of companies that still don't have a CISO, to Matt's question about you know the evolution of the CISO and, and things in these times, the number of companies that still don't have a great security program. I mean, it it always surprises me when you see companies that don't, and even you know, the number of Fortune 500 companies that don't have a CISO. Um, I mean, it, it just speaks a lot to the fact that there's still a lot of runway to the evolution of you know security and the importance and the role. And I, I think boards should be asking more questions about what the security of the company, what the security of the organization looks like and how that's being managed effectively. There are Fortune 500 companies that don't have a CISO. You don't have to name them by name, but I just, I found that shocking. There are. Yeah, I, I, I find it shocking as well. That's kind of my point. Mm. Now, now, you brought up the term, so I'm going to go there, risk, right? And when we think about the environment that we're in, there's some technology risks or some digital mm -hmm. transformation risks or some operational risk. There's different risk elements. And, and there are a number of articles we're going to cover in the next segment because we've been talking on this show how we have to shift away from vulnerabilities into more of a risk conversation. You brought up third-party risk. Yeah. What does risk look like from a CISO's perspective? Are, are CISOs really understanding and learning how to talk risk, especially to the board and to the other executives, or are we still uh, working through this concept of threats and vulnerabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think evolved CISOs are asking those questions. Um, I think the maturity and the evolution of that role into a, a business and risk professional, um, you know, companies are really starting and that this has been something we've seen with COVID companies are looking to hire professionals who can actually have those business level discussions. And I think, you know, I've talked on this a couple other times is that 
I think a lot of people came out of a technical background. And so part of that technical background is they feel very comfortable in that in the technology. But when you elevate and you're talking to the board, that becomes a challenge, right? Um, they, it's not the right conversation and not the right level of participation. People are looking for those business level decisions and conversations around what is the risk to the organization. And I think if you look at you know, legal, finance, um, sales. I mean, they're they're very adapted talking about those business discussions of of risk in their areas. And I think as CISOs, we have to become much better at having those conversations. And I think that that is where people are going to get a seat at the table. They're going to start to have conversations where they can participate if they can evolve that way. And so I think there's still a lot of CISOs that talk technology and talk bits and bytes and how many vulnerabilities and how many threats they're seeing. But I think the analysis and looking at scoring and context and, you know, trying to help the business make decisions and saying it's not a black or white decision with regard to security. It's really about, you know, trying to understand what the risk tolerance of the company is and then how to take the company in a direction from a security perspective that models that risk tolerance and gives the right balance. Yeah, we've talked about the evolution of of maybe CISOs moving away from an operational technology role into more of a governance kind of risk yeah. role. It, it, has this forced the hand of this kind of shift in mindset for the CISO because we, we have to be better aligned with the business risks? Yeah, I think it really has. Um, the problem is that you know if if you're not evolving that way, you're not you're not getting that seat at the table. You're not participating in the conversation. You're being relegated, um, you know, for a long time. And, and even today, I think it's it's probably most likely that the CISO is going to report under the CIO. But I think to get out of that technology centric viewpoint and move into a more risk and business based approach, you know, move as a uh, CEO direct or under a chief risk officer or even for the CISO to evolve into that chief risk officer, that, that's really that, that conversation and that evolution that needs to take place. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of interest in, in looking at drawing from other areas of the organization, not just you know, your typical technology sector for you know, security professionals. In fact, you know, when I'm looking to hire security professionals, or at least in the past, I've looked outside of security in some cases just because it gives you a better a better viewpoint, a better perspective, not just to be coming from a core technology or security viewpoint. Yeah. When you th- when you sit in your seat today at Qualys mm-hmm. as a technology provider, a cloud-based technology provider, what are some of the big key risk areas you're trying to account for in in your program, right? Because you do have potentially a target on your back, maybe a little bit being in the cloud. You know, what are some of the risks you, you're thinking about as a company that you have to mitigate and be prepared for? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, um, as Paul mentioned, it's really hard to defend against a nation state, a really, you know, motivated, committed um, attacker, right? But, you know, we, we still obviously have to take that into concern. But I think, you know, the areas as a you know cloud provider we look at is certainly you know, issues where our customer data is hosted, how it's protected and secured, uh, making sure that we have the most secure platform we can, but then also, you know, the resiliency of it and how if we did have an incident, how how we could recover. I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of CISOs look to protect and don't spend enough time on the recovery aspects of it. And then certainly we're, we're taking, you know, a hard look at um, vendors and, and our third party uh, integrations, 
how we make sure and we assure that we're doing the best we can to make sure that those vendors are, you know, secure, they're providing secure services to us. Um, I think looking at third-party risk is one area where it's, I don't know, it's been been unsexy. It's been more of a, a business continuity issue and it, it hasn't been at the forefront. I think, you know, it, it's being raised certainly as an area of concern right now. It's something that we're taking a greater look at. Um, and then I think, you know, you have to look at your technology stack and make sure that, you know, the technologies that you're utilizing really are, you know, there for enablement um, and provide for future security and future growth path as opposed to looking at, you know, it's been working, it's legacy, and so we're not going to touch it um, and the potential inherent risk from, you know, tech debt that you have. And so I think managing tech debt is something that really everyone needs to start looking a little bit deeper into. Uh, so third-party vendor management's back in vogue. It really I, is. I could go back to my old job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 strange how things come full circle sometimes. But um, you know, there was a there was a wave where people were really interested in it. It kind of fell away. Um, but yeah, it'd be great to be a third-party risk vendor right now because I mean, they're, they're getting a lot of attention in that in that space. Yeah, the other one. I mean, obviously, tech that's been an, an interesting one. I mean, even internally, you know. Paul and I continue to look at our technology stack. He's just put a bunch of improvements into the studio. You know, we always think about, well, if we have an outage, how do we continue to do the show or a webcast or whatever? So, I mean, even as a small company, we don't, you know, we have to think about tech debt and, and, res and operational resiliency. And, and I don't know how you don't do it as a large company. Well, and supply chain too, I think, sorry, Ben, <laughs> but like as it relates to what you do as a business, what you do in IT and security, thinking about your supply chain is very, very important for a whole bunch of reasons for security, for one. Also, thinking about all those container ships that have technology parts that are floating off the coast of California that can't unload them due to restrictions in California frustrates me and greatly concerns me. Frustrates me because I know my new AMD processor that I really want is probably on one of those container on ships. On one of those ships, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it, it's really interesting when you think about it. And you, you mentioned small companies, um, you know, in the reliance, even, even large companies. So, you know, uh, a company that could be a global company may have a reliance on a very small vendor that only has two or three people. And, you know, it could be a very small part, but very impactful as to, you know, PII data that's stored with that, that individual third party. I can think of specific instances in my past where, you know, we've had, you know, one, two, three person companies that, you know, something potentially gets compromised and then that's a big impact for us. And so how do you manage that? And, you know, when you think about, you know, even, you know, things in your personal life as a consumer, you know, you back up your, your, um, your photos, right? Where, where do you back those up? Where do you store them? How do you access them? Um, you know, can you get those data back if you change providers, right? Um, how do you manage that? It's, it's magnified for these, these smaller companies that just don't have, you know, the, the internal structure or staff to be able to kind of manage some of those complex risk decisions that can, can impact much greater down the line in the supply chain. Yeah. And, and if they did have solutions, they might've been like, in the office solutions and now all of a sudden you yeah, know you who's do. in the office to to run the backups uh it, it, you know because mm -hmm. yeah. nobody may even go into the office i mean even even for us like cyber risk alliance now is is the mothership i mean our president's the only one that goes into the office to check the mail i mean there's nobody else there 
Yeah, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, you know, at each one of the offices for Aristocrat, there was, you know, one, maybe two people that had access to the office. And, you know, here for the Austin office, I was one of them, right? And so you think about the amount of assets or information, things that are locked up that people can't get access to, it's, it becomes really challenging. And you could quickly find yourself without access to critical data that you need just because you, you can't physically get to it, which most people didn't plan on. I mean, that wasn't part of, you know, a lot of people's BCP planning was trying to figure out how to get to an office because of a pandemic. <laughs> but I think if you have a great CISO, you should be able to go to a document and it should tell you how to do that and tell you how to do that securely. Because that's a great concern that if the disaster recovery, your business continuity plan is done without security, you could be taking those documents and snail mailing them or putting them up in an open S3 share or sharing them insecurely. That's bad. That's why when you said the Fortune 500 companies that don't have a CISO, that is a great example of like why you need someone with the voice of security in things such as your disaster recovery or business continuity plans. Yeah, and I think it highlights the need. Like, you know, there's a lot of area organization. I think legal is a great example of where a, a lot of areas of the organization know that they need to consult legal, right? Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of organizations where the majority of the organizations don't know that it, they need to consult the CISO for security-related decisions, right? And so they make decisions either poorly um, just because they don't have the knowledge or they're in a vacuum, and that can come back to bite them in the end. And th that, you know, goes back to the, the one of the original points Matt brought up. I think, you know, CISOs need to translate into that business officer uh, role as opposed to just being a technology officer so they can be a part of those conversations and be brought in early and often. I think it's the perception of consequence. If I don't consult legal, I could end up in prison, and prison is really bad. If I don't consult security, I mean, we may get hacked, we may have a data breach, but our stock will recover, and you know, it's the consequences in most people's minds aren't, aren't the same. Maybe for a lot of cases, they are not the same, but there's still consequences that you want, that you can, are avoidable, right? Yeah, and so I, I guess that's you know how do we how do we move the industry? How do we help mm. move the industry that way? And I think that's you know uh, you know I, I think a lot of people aren't prepped for the CISO role when they become a CISO. Um, you know, you, you take that first role, and it's usually you know, hey, it's an offer I can't refuse. I I, I want to you know move up in my career and on my career path, and so you don't know necessarily the questions to ask. Um, you know, the, the things that you should talk about as far as, you know, job offer and, and um, what the job looks like and who the reporting structure is. And then even people who have been in the role, you know, and you get in that, that situation and, you know, the reporting structure isn't exactly what it should be. How do, you, how do you push for that, right? And so I think the more times that we're having those discussions, we're talking about that amongst ourselves, but also, you know, in those moments, I think that's going to start to foster the education that there needs to be a change. Now, now, Ben, you said uh, an offer you can't refuse. I hope for your CISO position there wasn't a horse head in your bed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of offer, but yeah. <laughs> I watched that movie a lot growing up. So, <laughs> And I'm still looking for that offer I can't refuse, too, by the way. I mean, yeah. <laughs> in a different yeah. life, without the horses. But, <laughs> without right. the horses. But you, but you brought up a really good point, you know, culture, right? What is, mm -hmm. how is security perceived? Mm. Is it going to be, you know, strategic with the business or, or not? I mean, there's a lot of questions, you know, you don't necessarily know to ask when you go into that first CISO role, but I bet you learn it pretty fast after you've been in the trenches for a while and you realize, you yeah, <laughs> I, I can't be successful in, in this situation. Yeah. And look, that's the biggest impediment. Um, you know, I've been asked before, like, what's the biggest problem for CISOs? And I think, 
you know, it's, it's not really budget. Um, that, that can be a result of the problem, but it's the budget isn't really it. It's not really staffing. It, it's more corporate culture and alignment to the needs of the business and, you know, the importance of security to the business. And so if you're misaligned on your vision of what that is versus what the company or the CEO thinks it is, it's going to be a really hard road, right? And so I think, you know, the number of CISOs that have probably gotten hired without even actually ever talking to the CEO, it's probably a high percentage. And that that really needs to shift and change. I mean, you need to have those honest discussions about what the alignment is with the business and what they're actually looking to achieve. But it, yeah. it can be eye-opening, um, yeah, when you when you get in and you find it's misaligned. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of expectations that, yes, I'm going to report to the CISO and they're serious about security, but sometimes they're not <laughs> aligned that way. Yeah. And, and that really would be uh, uh, hampering. And I think if you're a CISO out there looking for your next position, culture and alignment and the strategic positioning of a CISO and where it fits in the organization are definitely things you'd want to understand before making a move these days. Yeah, and a lot of it's not in what... Um what is actually said, but you have to suss out what the real, what the real alignment is. You, you have to uh, kind of do your own investigation and digging to find out a lot of it's expressed in, in how they actually respond to things versus what's actually said, you know, potentially in an interview or discussion, what the commitment is. And, you know, you can look to the past of a company and look for, you know, kind of inflection points as to why they're now looking for a CISO or why they're making a change and, and what their commitment is. But um, that, that is a very important part of it is figuring out what their, what their actual commitment to the role is and do they truly understand what the role is and does it meet your vision. Just like with a good third-party vendor management uh, program, do your due diligence. That's true. That is very true. Ben, always a pleasure. Thank you for filling in today because we had a cancellation. Thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. No, happy to. Thanks for thanks for ringing me. I appreciate it, Matt. Always a good time to talk to you and Paul. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, man. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Stopping advanced threats requires knowing exactly what you're up against. ExtraHop Reveal X is the only solution that shows you not just where intruders are going, but where they've been. 90-day look back and complete network visibility across the data center, cloud, and device edge help security teams respond 84% faster with ExtraHop Reveal X network detection and response. Explore the interactive demo at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Paul Lassadorian. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review those often and we'll reach out to you if you've been approved to come on one of the shows. Also, if you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available online for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. All right, Paul. So uh, mm. the articles, uh, but before I, I, I put it in the opening, seven Super Bowl rings for one Mr. Tom Brady. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty amazing feat when you think about it, right? We've seen a that, lot of great There was some statistic, Matt, like he's got more, more wins or the mo- highest winning percentage out of anyone out of all of the four major, major sports. sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, just 
to compete at that level, one thing that I noticed about Tom Brady and others that compete at, at that level level on a you know kind of similar playing field is that they're never happy. They never settle. They're always constantly tweaking something about their regimen, their routine, their preparation. It's always constantly being tweaked to see if they can get more performance out of it. They never, ever, ever settle. I think that was really telling about, you know, if you translate that into your career and for this show on, on CISOs, like never settle with where you are in terms of your security programs, your technology infrastructure, because as soon as you do, you're, you have no chance of being the best, none whatsoever. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting to me on this storyline a little bit is what if he stayed with the Patriots? For a second, right? Let's just well, play yeah. this out. Does he continue to evolve his game? Right. Because you kind of get used to the routine, uh, in in. But by yeah, changing, true. by going it's down true. to Tampa, yeah. I mean, he had to change. I mean, think about well, but all what the that, leadership I mean, communication skills he's yeah. he had to get oh, yeah. that team aligned. But let me let's talk football for a second too. I mean, I don't know if he went to Tampa and they kind of laid all this out for him. But the way that it worked out was like, all right, hey, you're going to come to Tampa. You're going to have a defense that kicks butt, an offensive line that's really good. By the way, we're going to bring Gronk out of retirement. We're going to get you Antonio Brown. And if you can take us all the way to the Super Bowl, we're going to have home field advantage. Like, how do you say no to that? <laughs> right? I mean, those are all the things he didn't have uh, at New England, right? I mean, the past few years at New England, I think we really struggled in those in those areas. And it just goes to show you that, Yes, one person in the quarterback is really important, but you have to surround yourself with a great team, I think, is the other lesson uh, as well, Matt. They gave him great people to throw to, and they gave yeah. him a great environment to to flourish in. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it, you know, yeah, I don't think you take away anything from Belichick, too, because I was thinking about that. They at one time had a fantastic team, but don't forget, a lot of those coordinators went off to get head coaching jobs. Yeah, I think that they really do, and that's what system. happens. Yep. And and sometimes change is good for a leader yeah. to to kind of take yourself to the mm -hmm. next level. I thought he did a fantastic job with that team. It took them a while to figure it out. Yeah, you know they were but what, being seven and five, yes. twelve weeks in, they I, they were still figuring it out. I think that's something that really in this story that we're talking about that highlighted for me, like being comfortable with change, is one of the things that can make you a great leader. It certainly can, right? Tom Brady had to be really comfortable with change. As he got older, he had to change his regime. And I, know, and I obviously, being a New England fan, I follow Tom Brady a lot more closely than maybe some of our listeners, right? Always changing his routine as he got older. And a lot of professional athletes go through this. They have to change their routine, right? Jordan did a great interview with Mike Tyson. It's absolutely hilarious, by the way. And, you know, Tyson's in his 50s and was like, I want to go box again. Like, think about how your routine changes, right? And so con being comfortable with change. I think is another great takeaway, Matt. Yeah, no, agreed. It's a great game. I enjoyed it a lot. Oh yeah, um, one it. because I, I'm not a Chiefs fan, so <laughs> I know I feel bad for my neighbors are Chiefs fans. I'm like, I've been there. I mean, I've been there. Go to Super Bowls and lost. It sucks. It does. But they get a young quarterback. They'll be, they'll be. Fine. Yeah, they'll be fine. Now, we brought in a bunch of articles for kind of this early phase of a CISO discussion. I, I There were a couple of very interesting articles that I thought were some good foundational articles. We were talking with Ben last segment, you know, about being a CISO. And when you get that first CISO job, what it's, what's it like? And what do you expect? And, and there were some really good, just some foundational articles. So this first one from EC Council talks about uh, 
a guide to building your cyber security risk management framework. We, we talked a lot in the last segment more about risk than vulnerabilities threats because that's the role the CISO is moving into. So EC Council lays out this kind of like nine-step framework f- around building a, a, a risk management framework. I thought it was good. Yeah. There, there's a couple areas here I would debate. Um, like the order of a couple of the steps. Yeah, but I because, think it's it's hard to create a guide, right? Because the guide is going to be different for every... It's hard to create that high-level guide. I think it's good for people who want a casual read to kind of get a general feeling about some of the things you should be thinking about, right? Don't mistake that for like this is... there. There's like a guide for being a CISO that you can just pick up this guide and you can be effective as a CISO. Like that's not it at all. There's books... There's compliance program. There's all this stuff. But even at that, uh, again, I think it goes back to some of the qualities we just talked about at the top of this segment, being comfortable with change, never settling, and constantly making making those tweaks. And I really, you know, Ben kind of um, stoked the fire as some of the things you have to think about when, when you're a CISO and making sure security is applied to certain processes. Just going to require different skills. Guides may be helpful, but certainly not the whole picture. Yeah, and they kept this high enough level, Paul, where I think it it, it, it can be useful for a lot of organizations uh, and for CISOs. You know, understand your security landscape, identify the gaps, right? All great steps. I think they jump in to create a team and assign responsibilities. Yeah, I get it. I got gaps. I need to might need to fill them. Mm. But they don't talk about implementing a risk management framework until much later. And, and I think part of when you go to hire a team, you also want to have a good idea of kind of which framework you're going down and, and kind of what things you're planning to implement because they could influence what type of team members you bring in. So there was a couple things that were slightly out of order for me that I'd want to know which risk framework I was going to use based on my initial analysis that could help guide my decisions into hiring the right resources on the team to Agreed. fill some of those gaps. That Agreed. was, yeah. that was the one place. Yeah. It, it, Cause that, you know, it's establishing that risk appetite is like the first step, those high level conversations, which as if you and I have laid out a lot in the past, right? Is okay. Then where do we go next? we're going to attach to some kind of standard as a good starting point, right? In those early conversations, drive which one, which may drive what else you want to do, what people you bring on the team, like you said, where the organization is the most weakest, what level of security maturity they have, like all of those are factors that that play into it. Yeah, so things like uh, step seven and eight, implement a risk management framework and develop a risk assessment program. I'd move them up a little higher if I were doing this. Uh, that way I'd have a better idea on the type of team and the types of controls I was going to implement um, in my organization. They followed this blog up with a second blog, and I referred to it in the first article. I, it, it's kind of hyperlinked in there. And it's the risk management best practices post-COVID-19. Word of caution. There's a couple things in here that just didn't make sense to me. So, all right, yes, Got to determine my weak spots. I need to apply new technologies and techniques. And then it says install antivirus programs. Mm-hmm. But, but, mm. Like, if I'm deploying new and advanced capabilities, why am I talking antivirus? It, it just mm. it just seems really out of place for me. It's like, okay, uh, maybe this is a little too early on. Yeah, um, we should almost do a series of segments because I think I've got certainly. You, well, you and I both have materials on how to do this, uh, mm-hmm. or a guide on like 
what roads to go down. And you and I both have some quadrants and, and graphs that kind of lay out. Like jumping right to antivirus is one thing. Like you got to think about endpoint as a bucket and right. detect, protect, react, collect logs and analyze. That's all part of that bucket. And there's like different phases and things. Uh, Sunil did a great job uh, with the the matrix thing that he put together. Have you seen? You've seen that, right? We had Sunil on uh, ESW. Got it. It's the, the uh, cyber it, matrix thing. In any case, like, yeah. there's a, I mean, we pull from multiple different standards and things like that. I think we could right. do better than a lot of these articles are. are the articles are great. I'm going to try to knock the, the articles. EC Council's great, right? And it, it, they're good for, a, again, a quick read to glean some, mm -hmm. some knowledge and help guide. But I, I think there's a, a little meatier stuff we could put together. Yeah, and when you just jump into things like antivirus and, and yeah. VPNs for remote access, you're like, wait, you're not thinking about it holistically enough. Right. It, you need a remote a little... access solution. That's mm -hmm. part security. It's part IT. It's about the needs of the business, the risk appetite of the business, and then you have to put uh, the solution uh, together. And you may right. have to displace a solution that already exists. Now you're talking about an upgrade project all in that one fell swoop. Yep, exactly right. So the first two articles really are talking about building your risk management framework. The next article, the big eight uh, uh, around governance is now I have to I have to manage and, and govern that program, mm. right? So I thought it was a really interesting, logical next step, you know, to talk about, you know, then what's the governance aspects around that program that you just put in place? There's some really... There, there's a couple little like time bombs in here that I thought were interesting. I was, I was mm -hmm. hoping Jason was going to be on today because, yeah. you know, he, he would get into a couple of these with us. You know, one is empower the CISO to report directly to the CEO. Yeah, I mean that's when he's, li I mean he's lived that. He's lived right. through not being that and being that. Right. So he speaks right. from experience on that point wholeheartedly. But yeah. then, but then we heard Ben say there's there are Fortune 500 companies that, that still don't, don't even have, have a CISO. I'm still let alone th that's still a CISO not sitting, that reports to the CEO. It's still not sitting well with me. I'm really concerned for our critical infrastructure. <laughs> if you think about where the Fortune 500 play here in the U.S., being concerned about you know our country selfishly, uh, that's a little concerning for me. Yeah, there's a couple more nuggets in here that I thought were interesting. Allocate at least 10% of your IT budget to cybersecurity. Now, I know there's a ton of vendors out there that would love to see 10% yeah. IT budgets dedicated to security because we're used to like 3 to 4%. Right. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's true. But I think you can easily start creeping. And again, it's not about the money that, that, that you spend, whether you're spending 3 to 4 to 10 in uh, looking at governance of your cybersecurity program. These are talking about more of the higher level kind of things, right? Rubber has to meet the road. What I'm finding is extremely difficult, and I've pushed a lot of people in our interviews too, and they all agree that it's difficult, is implementing both the process and the technical controls to be able to go, if a control falls off in the forest, how do I know and how do I fix that easily? Mm -hmm. And not just in one area. I find a lot of organizations would do it well in vulnerability management, right? I mean, a lot of great organizations kicking butt in vulnerability management, but then you go to cloud posture and you go to endpoint config, like, and some of that starts to fall down. So that's that's hard. That's hard. Yeah, definitely. Uh, ben brought up communicate with customers and suppliers, the whole third party yep. 
aspects. And one that ties into the next article is stay up to date on regulations. Look, from a, if you're in the role and, and governance is part of this, you have to understand what's going on with the different regulatory mm-hmm. uh, requirements that are coming out. So for the next article, I put in what I thought was a super a great guidebook, like a hand guide yep. for CISOs. Uh, it links to the big federal and state regulations that you potentially would fall under in this role. Uh, you know, a lot of this alphabet soup I've dealt with in my career for a long time. I mean, I started uh, doing the work that I was doing on the, in the compliance side because of Sarbanes-Oxley and third-party yep. vendor management. And, and it was all based on uh, a lot of the stuff with Sarbanes-Oxley. And Sarbanes-Oxley was the early days. 2000s. That was pre-2008. Yes. And, but Sarbanes-Oxley was based on a bunch of, a series of other events where the CEOs weren't being held responsible basically for what was on the books. Well, executives to, in general. It, yeah. Not just not just C-levels, right? Executives yeah. in general, yeah. Yeah, Graham-Leach-Bliley was the federal law That's that allowed the, the banks yeah. to do insurance. Sarbanes-Oxley was more for public companies because of all the things yep. with like WorldCom and- That's what it some was. The, yeah. Enron, was that Enron? Yeah, Enron, Enron. WorldCom. Yes. There were a few of them, yeah. yeah. So like now yeah. with compliance, we just did an interview with uh, Josh Marpet um, about CMMC. Uh, and the nonprofit he's creating to help uh, organizations. It was kind of a great dive into compliance. There are things you must do to be compliant with laws. There are things you must do to be compliant with compliance standards, but then it starts to go down a rabbit hole because compliance standards, such as PCI, say you must or you should based on what it is, and then not complying with that could be like you have a chance to improve or you're subject to fines and you have to weed through those waters to basically figure out like what you must do and like maybe what you should do and then the other bucket of we accept the the risk kind of thing and that's right compliance in a nutshell basically and it goes back to the risk conversation that Mm -hmm. we started with right is once you understand risk tolerance, then you know what are these regulations you're going to do, which ones you're not going to do, which ones you're willing to pay fines on. I mean, PCI is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. At a certain level, certain merchants, it's probably cheaper for them to pay the fine than it is to implement all the security controls. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that is a logical decision to make for certain organizations. If you understand the risks associated right. with that stance, you could do that, and some have. Yep. Uh, let's see. Next article. Uh, three ways. I think this is uh, three ways to communicate, uh, speak to the speak the board's language around cyber risk. Um, and again, you see the theme, right? We're talking risk to the board. We're not talking threats and vulnerabilities. Yeah. If you're gonna be an effective CISO, you have to understand and associate cyber risk with business risk, and be able to have those conversations with the board. Um, and, and I think you're going to see more of this. There's some stats in this article about how many people have, you know, cybersecurity at the board level and, and what it's going to be in a few years. But it's really just talking about more about, all right, how do you present the data in a way that makes sense to the board members, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it is not technology speak here. It is not necessarily vulnerability and threat speak. They want to understand, okay, what, What's going on and how does that pose risk to the business? Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm realizing that how important that is in one respect, that if the board asks, hey, what are we doing about cybersecurity? 
and they get back a bunch of technical jargon and stuff they don't understand, they're not going to ask that anymore, right? We want to be in the position where the board, there's an agenda item in the board meetings, uh, you know, globally that they're asking, okay, cybersecurity status, what what is that? And if you've got good answers that are communicated correctly to the board, it's going to be an agenda item and something that they ask about. If you're kicking them back with, like you said, vulnerabilities and threats, that's that's not going to be effective. And not, they may not ask. Yeah, and it could be a graphic. It could be something that's not so detailed. It's, mm. it's something a little higher level. Some draw a picture for them, right? Let them help them understand what it's, what are those potential impacts to the to the overall business? Because most board members are more financially focused than they are cyber focused, right? To right. them, it's about revenue, profitability, customer retention, things that are going to drive the business. It's not about well, I've got APT31 over here that's doing this. It, it, it just yeah. it doesn't equate. Mm. Doesn't equate. Uh, this other article talks about um, some high-level threat intel reports and how to build threat intel reports for the board. I, you know, it was interesting. I thought I, I'd pull some interesting nuggets out of here, but as I was digging into it, I'm like, do you really want a cyber threat intel report to some of these folks. I mean, can you ever make a cyber threat intel report really easy to understand and, and translate to the business? Uh, I haven't seen one yet, so mm. I, I'm not quite sure that this article is going to help some people who need to do that. But uh, yeah. I was hoping to get some better nuggets out of this one. And I think you have to balance when you extrapolate too high up, what's the value? Like, what are you trying to communicate? And if you have to dilute that message enough to make it fit in a board meeting, is there really a message left at the end of the day? And maybe you're better off communicating something else that speaks yeah. to that, but it's not, I'm going to give you a cyber threat report, right? Because it's probably, if you're not going to be talking about APT groups and, and that kind of stuff, like really, what's the point? You know, you're better off talking about your your risk posture, your overall security maturity curve, how that's going to enable you to be compliant via CMMC. That's a great example, right? Hey, we want to do business with the federal government. Therefore, we have to meet these standards. Here's where we're at. Here's what it's going to cost maybe. And right. here's the business we're going to be able to do because we're at that certain level. And here's what it's going to cost to maintain it, right? That's a much better. Way problem. more effective than a cyber threat in total. Yeah, record. yeah. I mean, that yes. might be important for maybe a working group, kind of similar to how laws are developed maybe in, in, in this country, right? There's a working group that is digging into the details and going through that and producing those reports. But when it gets presented ultimately right to the president, it's still down. And other people have taken that into consideration. Yep. Uh, this last article, uh, I, it was interesting, 12 uh, security career killing um, things. Uh, and, and I thought I would go through this list and tell you which ones of these I've actually done or haven't done. <laughs> yep. So believing security is the end goal. No, I've never done that one. Uh, you know, I knew from very early days that security was a process, not a project. Uh, and when compliance got introduced into the, into the mix in the late nineties and early two thousands, it only made it more evident that security was not an end game. Uh, so I learned that very early in my career. So I've never made that mistake. I'd argue you have to do a lot of these things 
Oh yeah. Sometimes. I mean, number two. Sometimes to be right. I mean, everybody gets stuck. Sometimes you got to lose your cool. Sometimes you got to be tactical and not strategic, right? I mean, there's pluses and minuses to doing all these things at certain times. You got also got to make mistakes too, and yeah. and learn from them. And there's just no getting around that. Exactly. I think you know being too timid could get you in in, in into some trouble. I mean, again, most people who who know me know I'm I'm not very timid. Uh, yes, I can lose my cool <laughs> and have, right. I'm sure, uh, multiple times somewhere along the way. Yeah, but some of that uh, speaks to passion too, you know. And, yeah. you know, there are times when maybe you want to be timid as well. I mean, I, I'll admit when we first, you know, required by CRA, you got you to feel it out, right? Maybe, you know, put your ears on and listen first. Maybe some people mistake that as timid. Put your ears on and listen first before you jump in and do things. So I, I think... Don't think of these as all things that could kill your career. Think of them as tools that you can use, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially the run around building other skills. I, I mean, if I would have thought way back in the day that I would be in product management, product marketing, mm. marketing, strategy, uh, no. I mean, back then it was technology-driven, which, yeah. which is Build the of- right skills at the right time. That's yes. I would take this and change that into exactly that, right? Sometimes you could maybe you're building skills, but they're not the right ones, and that's also a failure. So I would change that one if I were writing this article. You got to build the right skills at the right time. Exactly, and that's how I and mean that's it, easier said than done. Certainly, yeah, you gotta of have course. A crystal ball and some would be predict, but you make your best guess and and stick with it. Certainly, don't not build any skills. That would be bad, <laughs> right? That is true. And you may stay in security, you may not stay in security. I mean, building those skills gives you other opportunities, both mm-hmm. in the profession, out of the profession. Uh, I think they're all valid. And, you know, sometimes they help you, you know, kind of raise your game and, and be a little more strategic. Maybe you don't want to be, that's okay. You know, I thought it was a very interesting list. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've done that one. Ooh, yeah, I did that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's probably why I got, no. <laughs> Yeah, I would say, you know, build some skills around what you're trying to secure is a good one too. If you're in I or looking to break into ICS as a security, you got to learn what ICS is. Same thing with software. If you want to, you know, be in DevOps and be secure and building software, you got to spend some time building some software. I think it's it's very vertical dependent too. I think healthcare can go be the same the same way, right? Just walk rain cold having never done healthcare and be a CISO. Probably not too many CISOs that are that are in that in that position, right? They look for people with you know that have some healthcare uh, background most of the time. Exactly. That's not a hard yeah. and fast rule, but most of the time, yeah, most of the time, got to have some skill set typically in the industry in yeah. order to get in. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's my list of articles for the week. Paul, thank you for joining me. We'll get Jason back on here in a couple weeks and, and we'll do this again. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly.